welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. I'm David James from Loop, and each episode I chat with guests about what lights them up in the world of people development. This week, I'm speaking with Trish Yule, who is an industry expert on data science, AI, and advanced analytics. But before we get started, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do give us a rating on your podcast app of choice so that others can find us. And thank you. Now, let's get into it. Trish, welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. David, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have this conversation today. Now, we've covered data in many episodes of the podcast, but as far as I'm concerned, we can't do this enough. We'll certainly continue until it's mainstream, but can I start today by framing the conversation in the context and ask you, what do few L&D people know about the potential of data to transform their practice? I think uh, there are actually a, a few quick uh, key points, and then we can we can see how the conversation evolves in order to flesh them out. But mm. what few people in L&D really understand about how data can help with their practice is, number one, it's not just about having skills being numerate, right? It's not just about being a numbers person. Um, there's actually, uh, Gartner calls it being a citizen data scientist, and that's somebody who is able to work with those who are numerate and can actually bring their domain knowledge in order to be able to help like data scientists and statisticians actually frame a particular hypothesis or problem and then use analytical output and use the numbers in order to solve it. So hmm. the first thing about the practice is it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to go from being people people to suddenly being really good with numbers. We can play in this realm with a citizen data scientist. The hmm. second thing real quick is it's about qualitative data as much as it is about quantitative data. We often, again, get kind of uh, persuaded or seduced, if you will, by numbers. There's a lot of reasons for that, for why that happens with humans across the board. There's actually quite a bit of um, research with that. But if you're going to get into things like predictive analytics, and we are, we can actually get there through qualitative data over quantitative data. And a lot of people don't know that in L&D. And the third thing is, so we have a tendency of looking at data uh, as a retrospective, looking back, right? Did we make impact or not? Uh, taking a look at the end of something, right? We're used to summative evaluation. We get to the end of a pilot. We get to the end of a leadership development program. We get to the end of something, summative evaluation. And really, the way that we can really leverage data right now is formative. It's as we go. It's yeah. ongoing so that we can influence the outcomes and the results. That's so important. I, th um, I think that uh, it's okay to acknowledge that, that we have done that, looked at the, the, um, the retrospective in the past and said, um, you know, with, with the people that we've got through, they were quite happy um, that, or satisfied when they did. Um, they passed our assessment if there was one. Uh, and then a lot of the time in L&D, we'll, we'll pose the question, did it work? And then we say, yeah, you know, maybe it worked. How, what data would we need to find to find it worked? I think what, what, if I understand it correctly there, what you're saying, Trish, is that there is no big reveal at the end. Like to understand at the outset what it is that we're trying to affect, that's almost our benchmark. And then there's the progress as we go. So it's almost setting ourselves milestones or even just checking to think, are we actually on course to, to achieving what we were out toward to doing, which I think is takes a um, a reframe of the the L and D mindset from delivering content and 
maybe people don't hope for the best, but there is an element of that. You know, people will come along and then maybe they'll take what um, uh, what we hope them to, and then we can look to see whether it was uh, worth us uh, doing that in the first place. But from what from what you're saying, it's it's much broader and uh, and and bigger than that. Um, but Trish, we're not at the beginning here, are we, of the curve with data? Um, L&D might be uh, jumping on board now, but is it true to say that, that L&D is just catching up rather than leading? Yeah, I would definitely say that. And I think it's really important for us to understand where we are in this particular cycle. And the reason is because we need to have the right perspective in order to understand the urgency moving forward. And what I mean by that is, We've actually had data and analytics in L&D for decades. I mean, we can go all the way back to like um, David Basarab actually introduced predictive evaluation to Motorola University back in 1991. We've got Jack Fincent, who actually started with evaluation and predictive in capital investments back in the 1980s. We have Gene Peace, who was actually the founder and CEO of a company that was uh, initially called Capital Analytics. Later, it was renamed as Vestrix. That was launched in 2005. It was the first cloud-based analytics platform for being able to do predictive analytics in the learning function. And so we've got a long history that's there, which means that the early adopter phase is long since over. That was mm. those pioneers that I just listed. Those were the pioneers of uh, learning analytics, you know, 30 years ago or over the past 30 years. What we're now getting into, if we looked at, you know, any of the adoption life cycles of anything, you know, including like Gartner's hype cycle, right? We're at a point now where it's coming into the mainstream and we're over that tipping point where this is no longer about aspiration. This is about expectation. In order to stay in the game of L&D, this is a capability that as an individual, we must develop. And as a function, we must uh, lead in our organizations. So it's not like AR and VR right now, where you can sort of duck down, maybe avoid it, um, see what happens in a few years' time, think that that might actually fizzle out in the same way as 3D TVs have kind of fizzled out and well, 3D entertainment, uh, even at the cinema. Um, but data isn't that in Ellen, not in business or L&D, is it? Exactly. And it's it's what you were talking about before, David, and that is we're, we're at a point of really needing to be able to make decisions at all levels of an organization. So it used to be in an old bureaucratic design model, which I, of course, understand many organizations still follow. We had decisions were made at the top of the structure, right? So we expected executives and leadership to be able to make decisions. Now we're pushing decision capability down to the point of work. We're pushing decisions down to the front line because organizations need to be able to move at the speed of change mm -hmm. that's happening within the markets that they operate, within the competitive landscape that they market, that they operate, that happens you know, according to what's happening with customer and client demands. And so that means that in order for L&D to support the organization, and that is our purpose at the end of the day, yeah. our purpose is not to create learning or to have people learn something. Our purpose at the end of the day is to support the organization and its people in executing against its vision and mission and strategic objectives then in order to be aligned with that, then we need to have the matching capability in order to facilitate that level of agility. 
that all makes complete sense with me, and I'd like to, uh, us to, to stay on the, uh, the L&D track, but I think it's important just for one moment to take a step back from L&D um, and just explore for a moment how data is really transforming business and working right now. Could you, could you paint us a picture? Yeah, so in the same way that you were just saying, David, about how this isn't a wait and see opportunity anymore, right? The train has already left the station. Like this mm. is a, it's time to jump on board. What's happening now in business and with organizations, whether it's for-profit or non-profit around the world, is that we're moving, we're actually in the largest IT migration ever in the history of humankind, mm. which means that we're moving from information processing to cognitive computing. And what that means is we're moving from just being able to capture and store and report on information to actually being able to leverage that information or that data for intelligence, for organizational intelligence, to be able to anticipate, right? So how do we come up with uh, uh, algorithms? How do we use operational data? How do we use extant data, data that's external to our organizations? How do we use real-time data in order to, again, be able to have this operational agility? And that comes into this intelligence paradigm that's coming into our organizations. But it's not only coming into our organizations, it's coming into our homes. I mean, a lot of people here in the States, you know, it was funny just being in London a couple of weeks ago for learning technologies. I was asking people about Ring. Do you have the, do you know of the Ring device that people are using for video at your doorbell? Yes. Yes. So uh, so we've got video now right at our doorbell. So somebody comes to the front stoop, mm -hmm. rings the doorbell, and there is actually a camera that's recording everything that happens on the front stoop. Now, this was amazing with Halloween last year here in the United States, because it's not only you as an isolated house recording what's happening on your front stoop, but there's also a neighborhood network of ring devices and people in a neighborhood now share video. So if you were trying to figure out, like in this case with Halloween, you know, maybe kids that were causing, you know, trouble perhaps in good fun because of the Halloween, um, because of the Halloween holiday, you now have a recording and can share with your neighbors and you can see like a pattern of an individual causing, you know, something to happen on a particular front stoop. Or maybe it's, you know, Amazon said that they delivered your package, but you can actually see in your video and your neighbor's video and so on and so forth that the Amazon truck didn't actually stop at your house. So people are using the Ring devices. We're using Ring. We're using things like Nest as a thermostat. We're starting to put intelligence into our households and we're using that to make decisions about how we manage our households, how we operate and integrate in our neighborhoods. That same kind of intelligence at that individual and social network kind of level is coming into our organizations. And that's what this whole thing about intelligence and cognitive computing is all about. And data and analytics is one component of a larger system that is setting the new framework in order to drive that intelligent capability. And what means that this isn't just a, a nice to have is that the organizations you've mentioned there and many, many more will use that data to more efficiently run their operation. Um, efficiency is a huge part, but of course uh, you can, um, as you mentioned with, uh, with um, predictive analytics before, um, more, more, you're more able to predict user behavior on a on a massive scale, uh, in order to make your operation 
more effective. Now, there's everybody knows the dark side to this. You've only got to see what is it, the Great Hack on uh, uh, on Netflix. Uh, Facebook's coming in for a bit of a, a kicking uh, recently, and data seems to be a dirty word all because of that. But what we don't see is that uh, energy companies are able to to uh, to make sure that entire neighbourhoods, if not cities and countries have the energy that's required you know this this is affecting water this is absolutely everything the more data that you have on usage need and resource allocation then the more the more successful you could be as an organization and then you come down to learning and development and thinking so what's then the potential power what we can be more efficient than we are right now uh, and it isn't just about uh, shaving dollars off of delivering the same stuff this is about more efficiently understanding what it is that people need our help with um, and uh, then providing laser focused solutions rather than cheap dip or stuff that just misses the mark. Well, and I think, you know, at the end of the day, I think a lot of people that are in L&D, there are two things that we've always ever wanted, right? We've we've always wanted to figure out how it is that we actually contribute value back to the business. Mm -hmm. And we want to actually have a positive impact on the people whom we serve. Like, yeah. We've, I, I think that that's been our heartbeat in our DNA for many in L&D, perhaps not all, but many in L&D. So how might we use data and analytics? How might we use some of these technologies like artificial intelligence? How might we use these things in combination in order to be able to drive those two outcomes, right? Provide value mm -hmm. to the business and feel like we're making positive impact. And funny enough, you should talk about water. Uh, because actually one of the uh, projects that I worked on about five years ago was actually with water utility in the UK when water was actually being deregulated in the UK for the first time. Hmm. And if we take a look at water as, a, as scarcity, a scarce resource globally, I mean, to your yeah. point, how is it that, uh, as an example, how is artificial intelligence and data and analytics coming into utility companies in order to be able to improve uh, service delivery and operational efficiency in order to be able to conserve resource like a precious resource like water. Mm. Um, and, and just real quick, just as a, again on the, on the consumer side, I don't know about there, but here in the States, we now get, as a consumer, I now get at my house a letter from my utility company that talks about my consumption, whether it's my electric bill, talks about my use of electricity or my water bill talks about my use of water, not only my individual use, but in the greater context of my neighbors. How about you guys? Are you getting that kind of information yes. as well? Yeah, yeah, we, we, get, we get that too. So uh, I, I have um, a hive thermostat and so I get all sorts of data telling me about my uh, uh, my um, energy usage and how that compares to other neighbors. I'm not sure whether this is, uh, I, I should be, uh, um, competitive uh, and uh, and use less energy or <laughs> or have a, have a higher temperature house, but uh, but but yes, it's it's very common now to, to get detailed information on uh, uh, on energy usage. And does it it does it influence your behavior? Uh, I do you know it's strangely uh, it this it doesn't uh, influence my behavior because I'd like more um, data on. Uh, and I know that uh, that some people have smart meters in which they they get a breakdown of exactly where they're using the electricity, uh, and uh, so I know that that is 
fairly commonplace in the UK at the moment. And I think that uh, certainly from uh, from uh, my wife's parents, they've become a lot more. Uh, oh, but yeah, it has changed their behaviour. So I'm I'm interested to see how. But uh, uh, yes, is that something you have? Well, and for for me, like I wound up discovering a water leak in the house. Like oh, I wow. didn't realize because again, it to your to your point, David. There's the top line, right? Like, mm. oh wow, this bill is greater than last month's bill. Like, why am I suddenly increasing my? Okay, well, if the if the amount of money that I need to pay this month is going up, what is what factors are causing that to happen? Mm. And now I do have a smart meter on the house, so I have more granular detail, and I was able to get to the root cause and solve that problem faster. Um, and so it is changing my behavior. The same thing, like with energy, like being able to look at electric usage. And, you know, we probably all have that area in our homes where the one room that gets really super hot and the other room (laughs) that's like freezing cold, uh, you know, or uh, so it's like, how do we then be able to better manage that type of resource within our homes, not only for comfort, but also for expense, right? So Mm -hmm. there's effectiveness. I want to be able to come home and live comfortably after, you know, especially for me being on the road, I want to, I want to come home and be in a comfortable environment. But then there's also efficiency. There's the cost of that. So we can take that same kind of paradigm and we can bring that into the organization in L&D. We can leverage data to help people make better choices about their performance Mm-hmm. Instead of just using it as a report card or a scorecard against somebody, we can actually leverage the data that we can gather insights to and then provide that to our internal stakeholders for them to make a better decision. Mm-hmm. And so part of the work that we did around the deregulation of the water uh, utilities in England um, several years ago was actually around developing personal resilience. It was helping people who work in a water utility company to be able to develop coping skills and coping strategies to be able to deal with the stressors and the high challenge of that job, just the day-to-day on the day-to-day basis of it. So as a quick example, we brought in learning analytics in order to be able to tell whether people were becoming more resilient or not. And if they weren't becoming more resilient, then whether what other interventions needed to be introduced, whether they were within L&D's responsibility or not, within L&D's wheelhouse or not, what were other recommendations that we could make based on data in order to be able to help the chief learning officer take that information to the rest of the executives to be able to... Um, make a business case for additional resources. And so in this particular case, we were providing relief to people. Here was a workforce that was under high stress. Part of the problem that they were trying to solve for was that they had a high incidence of stress-related sickness absence. That we know has direct cost and indirect cost on an organization. It affects the bottom line but it also has a high cost on the people, right? We're burning out our people. So how do we then take those health reports and in L&D deciding that developing, helping people to develop their personal resilience, how do we then use data to figure out if that's on track or not? Are people actually becoming more resilient? And if they are becoming more resilient, is it actually providing relief to the people whom we serve, not just the business result, but are we actually helping people to be better? And again, 
those are the two things that we in L&D have always ever wanted to do is to, yeah. again, meaningful results for the business and positive people impact. And we can use data and analytics in order to get there. And we've been doing that uh, in a very different way, largely in the absence of data. Now, some of, some of the reason might be, and, and I certainly hear, that the L&D folks uh, are... Re- I will use the word scared of data because I don't think it's uh, it it's it there it is that they're scared, but there, there's certainly some reluctance, and maybe that's down to it being um, an an abstract term, and you know, does it mean diving headfirst into spreadsheets and uh, that require mass interpretation, like it's a code that needs to be cracked? But um, certainly from my experience, and I'd love to know your thoughts, that it's not nearly as inaccessible as that, is it? No, and again, so two things. One is is that data is kind of the shiny object, but it's really a misnomer. It's not about the data at all. It's about action. Mm-hmm. You know, so any kind of analytics project, regardless of the domain, unless you're actually using the data to translate that into insights, it's not enough. You have to yeah. take insights and move that into action. And in order to do that, often takes an organization a, a few cycles of change management in order to socialize that capability within an organization. Most humans are not used to making informed decisions based on data, right? That is a learning curve that um, many people from the front line to the C-suite even need to learn within an organization that's not unique to us in L&D. So we keep excellent company in that. And what I mean by that is the second piece, which is, again, in any kind of analytics methodology, regardless of what you're putting the analytical lens on, so it could be operational analytics, business analytics, learning analytics, people analytics, analytics methodology is exactly the same regardless of, again, the particular domain, but what changes is the domain. And that's where, again, for people who are Um, a little put off by the idea of data and again put off by the idea of numbers and spreadsheets and so on and so forth and that is suddenly going to be their lives is that there's a whole broad spectrum in an analytics methodology that we can play in there are the the math is only really ever 20 percent of an analytics project 80 percent is coming up with the right questions of value yeah. Right hypotheses, identifying factors, and there's a number of ways that we can do that. And then taking the analytical output, it's the bookends, it's the front end piece. Well, what are we using data to solve? What are we trying to use data? What threat or opportunity are we trying to address through data? And then once we have that analytical output, how are we then socializing that in an organization to make sure that people are using that analytical information in order to take action? Because you're not done with an analytics project until you take action. And again, we can be what Gartner calls a citizen data scientist. We can use our domain knowledge of learning and people Mm -hmm. and be able to then work with those. If we're not numerate ourselves, we can actually complement our practice by working with those who are. So let's let's look at this in terms of uh, of, of the things that L and D um, stuff that L and D will be presented with. So so maybe this is uh, L and D need to overhaul induction, or you know, and there and there you go. There's an assumption. I, I always think that if you start and you think that that's an assumption rather than a state of fact, then you can actually go and find the data to back up whether 
induction does actually need an overhaul or whether you need induction at all or what, what your induction is there to solve or, or perhaps new manager training. Again, another one that so few organizations have actually got right. Um, uh, L&D have to deal with core capability building um, and uh, say a change program. With any of those, um, what, what, where would you start um, from either the uh, collecting data or making better decisions to with what to work on and where to go with that? Yeah, it's a really good question. So, so we are used to, um, and our our some of our frameworks have uh, put us down this path, and so we come by our mindsets uh, from our history. So what I mean by that is if we take a look at the Addy model, right? So Addy came out of the waterfall method, which came out of the World War II in the 1940s. And it was a systematic approach of being able to get all of the requirements up front in order to be able to define a solution. And since we had done all of this you know, initial uh, assessment up front, then by the time we created the thing, we could have some level of confidence that we had done due diligence that that thing would not only resolve whatever the issue was, but that it would resolve that issue over a long period of time. Yeah. And so we have a long history in L&D of wanting to come up with a solution that's right. We want to be right that the solution that we came up with is the right solution to solve that problem. The challenge is we don't live in that world anymore, right? So that environment that was static and routine where you could take weeks, months, whatever, in order to come up with the right solution. Well, by the time you now come up with the right solution on Monday morning, it's changed by lunch on Monday, right? Like the, the yeah. challenge has changed and the priority has changed. And so that waterfall approach doesn't work as well in this fast moving business environment. So the first thing we have to do is change our minds about being right. We have to be willing to be wrong. And we have to be willing to take the hypothesis or the solution that we think is right and make a small bet up front and experiment and test to see if we're on track or not. And we have to be then open and willing to take an action based on what that initial pulse check or that initial test comes back. If it comes back and it tells us we're off track, we have to be willing to either tweak the solution or even eliminate it and start again. And so the, the biggest thing in developing analytical capability is that paradigm shift in that mindset of being willing to be wrong and being okay with failing and then learning from those failures and then being able to iterate and improve or even when we need to, to start again. Well, I think that, uh, that, that Trish in L&D, we're used to being wrong when it comes to induction and new managers because too much of induction is overwhelming people on the in their first two or three hours, hundreds of slides that have been cobbled together and everyone's had their say. It's a big exercise in we need you to know this, uh, which really is just we need to say this because the person there can, can't remember the, the name of the, the, the person sitting next to them. And with new managers, we neglect them for weeks, months, sometimes even years to figure it out all for themselves. Um, and then we'll put them onto an immersive program um, that, you know, two or three days um, to try to, um, to retrospectively fix 
uh, all the all the things that they've figured out in the rich context in which they work. So so I'd say that that we're used to getting stuff wrong um, in in that regard. But with data, um, I love what you say there. It's about uh, testing. It's about experimenting, making small bets rather than large bets. Uh, which kind of you know dismisses the, the 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 big program that's been signed off by all the stakeholders and meets all of their needs, and it's much more about the 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 person you're seeking to influence, the world that they are operating in, the challenges that they face, the unfamiliar situations that they'll butt up against as they assimilate into this new role or this new organisation. But where's the data? What like if we if we're saying this we're going to be making data driven decisions, and if L and D is coming from a place of of Addy and waterfall and big bets, what what is the data that we to to try to make this tangible to the listener? Yeah. So uh, so two things. And before I get there, so on on your point about making the we have a history of making big bets on the program that all the stakeholders signed off on. We also mm. have a history of making big bets on the platform that all, yes. the, all the stakeholders have signed off on. So that whole idea of being able to drop half a million dollars a year in a multi-year contract with, you know, insert technology provider here, mm-hmm. those days are also at an end. Um, Thank we the can, Lord. We can, yeah, <laughs> we can do it. We can do yeah. it. You know, we can make that big investment up front and say that is the platform and that is solution and and implement it without actually doing those small bets and those tests up front. <laughs> it may be career ending, but we can do it. Um, so so going back to so the original so the question of okay, how do we make this really really concrete? So in mm. in two ways. The first way is exactly what you were just talking about with the manager induction. What's happening is, again, the world is moving whether we're on board with this or not. And we can actually tell through business productivity tools, and I mean we, humans, not just L&D, we can actually look at the data that's actually flowing through our standard, common, ubiquitous business productivity tools, day-to-day tools, and be able to see how well we're onboarding our managers or not. And so what I mean specifically by that is we can actually now see that in Office 365 data. So Microsoft as a company has a whole bench that is now dedicated to coming into organizations and meeting with executives and with business leaders in a line of business and showing them how to leverage the data that they already create as a byproduct through daily use of their subscription software in order to be able to address human performance issues, including, and one of the big places that they're able to leverage the data is by being able to take a look at how well we're supporting our managers or not. And, and, and so one of the things that I say to L&D people all the time is we are grumpy cat over the fact that line of business, right, or our stakeholders come to us and they go, hey, uh, we don't mean to treat you as an order taker, but we're treating you as an order, or, order taker, blah, blah, blah needs training, right? Here, can you go train these people because this type of performance is not happening, right? And we, we get upset about this in L&D that there's so much more that we can do. My question is, if they've got access to systems like Office 365 and can use Power BI and leverage the resources from the Microsoft team in order to be able to solve human performance challenges without our involvement, what happens when those orders stop? 
So what happens when they stop coming to L&D mistakenly ordering training to fix a problem because they can see through operational data what the root cause of that problem is and actually address it in an appropriate way, whether we're involved or not. So that's the first thing on the manager induction training. So how do we get on board with this? Number one, we can leverage those tools as well. We can get ahead of the data that's already flowing in the daily business. We're not restricted to data that's you know a byproduct of our training interventions or learning interventions or data that comes out of the LMS. We can actually identify again, what is a problem or opportunity that is of value to the business and our people for us to address through data and then look at appropriate data sources, whether we own that data or not, whether we have access Mm. to that data or not. But it starts with that question. It starts with that question. The second piece, the second scenario is going back to that resilience. So in in the case of the resilience training, the question was, are people becoming more resilient or not as an outcome of this particular training program? And we knew that it mattered because it linked all the way upstream to something of value to the people in the business, stress-related sickness absence, right? So mm. at the end of the day, that's the goal, yeah. but we can measure progress towards that particular goal, right? It's like a soccer game. First, we got to get down the field. Before we can ever score, we got to get the ball down the field. Now, whether we kick it all the way down the field or whether we, you know, it, 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 takes, it takes time to get it down the field, the same thing with our learning intervention. So the first thing was, are they becoming more resilient or not? It was like, okay, what are the leading indicators that would tell us leading up to that if we're on track or not? And we can actually map that out. Here's the end game stress-related sickness absence. We believe that by people becoming more resilient, it's going to alleviate the people and the business problem in stress-related sickness absence. So are people becoming more resilient? And now we can work backwards from that. Well, how would we know if people are becoming more resilient? What would that look like? What can we measure? And then what can we then manage and monitor, right? There are some things that we can actually actively address. And there are other things that we just need to be able to keep track of, but we can back it up and look at those leading indicators and then come up with even smaller questions and look at how we might use data around those from existing systems and existing sources. And that's the key for me, Trish, that um, that that it starts with an assumption or it starts with a hypothesis. You you're, you started said there. Uh, there's there's a question around resilience, and the next step then is to to understand how that may manifest. Now you're not solutioneering. I mean, very quickly, an L, the traditional L and D mind could go towards, oh, I've done this in a previous job, or oh look, Jenny uh, ran a management development program at another company. I could see what content she's got. It's solution, solution, solution. But what what you're saying here is that what are the what are the questions I need to ask to find out how this is manifest as a problem? Going back to the new manager stuff, instead of thinking um, uh, I, I could pull together a program that is academically sound, we could do the Tuckman model and we could do Grow and we could you know trying to fill up two days. You'd be saying so. First of all, what are managers accountable for in our organisation? Uh, and to what extent are they successful? Um, are they achieving? And you, you could almost say then, um, what happened? What's the story of a of a manager within the first twelve months? Are you, what's what's their own personal level of uh, of performance? 
probably more critically, what's happening with the team? Are, is the team as productive as it should be in whatever ways the team is measured and deemed a success? What about engagement? What about churn? Are you losing top people? All the things that a brand new manager will be accountable for, ask the questions up front. Is there a problem? What's the problem? To what extent is that a problem? And probably one of the most crucial ones is, is this something that we even should get involved in? And then go from there, but start nothing before you've asked the questions and you've gained the data. Is that right? That, that's exactly right. And we can, and this is where all of these new disciplines, or we feel like they're new disciplines that are coming into L&D, start to integrate with each other. Mm. It's not, well, do we follow this trend or do we follow that trend? It's yes and. So as yeah. an example, we can use design thinking and we can mm -hmm. use something like journey mapping in order to be able to map out that manager's journey. We can, yeah. we can take a look and say, okay, over that 12 month period, you know, what, what are the conditions of success? Not only mm -hmm. at the end, summative, right? At the end of yeah. 12 months, what <laughs> makes a manager successful, but leading indicators, formative, leading up to that, how would we know if that manager is on track or not? Mm -hmm. We can do that by plotting out that manager, that first year manager's journey, and we can use design thinking as a discipline in order to be able to do that. When we do that, we can then look at those milestones and we can say, okay, there are different milestones that are either time-based or capability-based or you know, that can be observed in the, purple, in the person's behavior, or maybe there are other assessment instruments that are already embedded in that 12-month run. But we can take a look at what are the milestones at which we need to be able to measure again to be able to see on track or not, and we can, mm. we can lay that out. And that's why it's really important, like some of these disciplines that are coming in now, like learning engineering, which is something from IEEE, being a learning engineer means being able to take learning science. To your point, we want to know about learning science. We want to know about the neuroscience of learning. We want to know how it is that humans learn. But alone, it's not enough. We need to then take that and add that in with design thinking, with human-centered design, performance consulting, data and analytics. It's all of these things coming together into this multidisciplinary approach in order to be able to have these outcomes, not outputs. It's not about creating yeah. assets anymore, like training materials or a training course. Those are assets. It's not enough. We need to be able to create outcomes. We need to be able to drive outcomes. And so it's that shift from outputs to, to outcomes and being able to tell if we're on track, formative in addition to summative as we go. And it's about being able to, again, do those small bets over time until we find out that something is working and then be able to scale it. Then we can make the investment, financial effort. Then we can actually bring that into our organization and, and scale it across the enterprise or to whatever population that that serves. And what you're describing here, Trish, isn't the future of L&D. This is the present of business that, that L&D needs to, to catch up and um, uh, and grab hold of because the way I see it is that um, this isn't up to L&D to evolve now. The, uh, the expectations coming from elsewhere where there are already dashboards, there are, there's already um, 
so many other parts of the, of the business that have been on this journey and make data-driven decisions. It's not, I mean, with the budgets that, that are spent on, on training, unless it is seen as a perk and just a, a spend, which is becoming less of the norm, there, the, the expectation is going to be raised, which does bring me on to, to the next part because, um, you know, they, there's one, there's, on one hand, we need to catch up and, uh, and understand and utilize data. But we've got this whole world, as you mentioned before, of predictive analytics uh, as well, which I know has affected HR. And I'd love to know uh, from your perspective to what extent that is affecting HR and what the potential of that is in L&D. Yeah, I, so to transition to that, I, I've got mm. a quote from the Boston Consulting Group, and I, I love this. I love this quote because it really sets the whole frame for the urgency behind L&D moving in this direction. Mm. Because to your point, it's not just about L&D, it's about what's happening at the world at large. And so the, the quote from the Boston Consulting Group says, this digital disruption requires that people and enterprises adopt new ways of working. And that requires an innovative approach to learning at work. Learning is survival critical for employees and enterprises alike. If you fail to establish new ways of learning, you can't achieve new ways of working. And absent those, you can't compete. To avoid that fate in the digital age, you need an adaptable learning ecosystem that elevates learning strategy to the CEO level and embraces digital. Hmm. So what's happening with the HR analytics uh, is really what's happening, again, with the operational analytics. If you look at your organization and look at the way that data analytics and artificial intelligence, because the way that organizations are using artificial intelligence to start is in order to be able to process data. So we're using artificial intelligence in order to be able to do things like factor analysis. We're using artificial intelligence in operations in order to be able to analyze data at speed and scale. Hmm. And not just data that we're used to like structured data, like in a spreadsheet and numbers, we're using unstructured data like video, like images, like sound. That's all data now, right? That can all now be processed, and especially when we're using artificial intelligence. Qualitative data, text mining, being able to do sentiment analysis, being able to look at language patterns, being able to look at the way that people, the language patterns in an organization um, Again, that's where a lot of the predictive analytics is coming from, is it's not coming from the quantitative data sets, it's coming from the qualitative data. So the qualitative data, if you look at where are conversations happening, where are where is qualitative data being generated, we can see it on communication tools like Skype, like Slack. Microsoft Teams is a big data repository now. Uh, email is a data repository now. Where are conversations among people happening? How might we be able to leverage that data, analyze that data in order to be able to predict future human behavior, which links to a particular organizational result? And a lot of the data sources that are being used on the HR analytics side and the broader HR analytics or talent analytics side or people analytics, if you will, is actually taking a look at things like, again, that qualitative data and those types of repositories. And that's why we're starting to hear a lot about like organizational network analysis or social network analysis is we're, we're figuring out that it's in the conversations um, in and among people. That's where work gets done. 
So Microsoft, as an example, actually has a lot of research now that says, you know what, it's not about the individual skills of a person that actually determine success. It actually more has to do with that person's ability to be able to build an internal network in their organization across different stakeholder groups. That's how work actually gets done. And we can actually see in conversational data now through these different discussion platforms, how those conversations, like what are those points of influence? Like who has influence in your organization? And oftentimes it has nothing to do with the org chart. So from an L&D perspective, we can actually start with looking at qualitative data ourselves. We actually have a great source of qualitative data. It's in our smile sheets. It's the comments in our smile sheets can actually tell us oftentimes a lot more what's happening with a particular population than necessarily some of the other quantitative data that we're collecting on some of the more common smile sheets that are out there. But going back to that work that we did on resilience, we were using predictive analytics to predict who most likely would or wouldn't actually apply what they learned in the resilience workshop back on the job. And we were using smile sheets as the number one data source in order to be able to do that predictive analysis to make that determination on who needed more targeted intervention and where did we need to take our lens for more of a diagnosis. So not to be punitive, we're not trying to use data to like punish people, we're trying to figure out who needs help and what help do they need and how might we in L&D provide it. And that's the exciting part. And when you add another dimension to uh, who needs help and what do they need help with, not just today, but where we're going in a year, two years, three years from now, with so much emphasis on skills and uh, future skill sets, it's going it, to. This is going to require us to become to get up to speed with data to be able to have really powerful and important conversations with our business leaders about this. That are far more above conjecture and estimation uh, that we can only do with the traditional L&D skill set. Which I suppose then, look, all, all great journeys have to start with the, with the first step, uh, Trish, and uh, the listener might be uh, wondering what that first step might mean to them. And we've, we've discussed so much that data's not just about numbers in spreadsheets, that, that it's about uh, what's, what's really going on and would help L&D to understand the the context in which the people they're seeking to influence actually operate, to understand what actually needs working on, to to understand where they can place those small bets and then to learn with those experiments so that they're hitting milestones and achieving well, well before they would if they were making those big bets with programs and systems. So all of that makes perfect sense. Where should we start? So the first thing is we need to have an understanding that we need to be better business partners, right? We need to be business, better business partners in specifically being ready by building our own analytical capabilities so that when the so that we can go and meet the business in its ability to build its analytical capability, right? It's kind of a play within a play. So, mm-hmm. you know, again, going back to that uh, BCG, you know, quote about we know that entire industries now are being not just disrupted, but deconstructed, right? They're being disassembled. And if we look at how industries are being disrupted and deconstructed, then that means the business models are changing, which means the operating models are changing. And we in L&D are supporting the ways that people work. 
So if all of that is shifting, then we need to raise our perspective beyond L&D. That's the first place to start. What is the greater context? What is happening in the world? What is happening in our industry? What is happening in our organization? And how do we align to that first to make sure that we have repositioned ourselves and our value proposition to support that ongoing future state rather than our old traditional uh, existence within an organization? How do we redefine ourselves and our identity within the greater context of what's happening in our organization's industry and our organization specifically? If I can uh, also add to that as well, Trish, is that uh, that I've seen that uh, that you are uh, a prolific writer yourself, um, and uh, I can point people in the direction of, uh, of some of your work, uh, for which we'll put some of the um, uh, the links in the show notes. So, but if people do want to follow you or connect with you on social, how can they do so? Yeah, so probably the best place to the central source of where I post to is is usually on LinkedIn. But I'm also very active on Twitter, and I've actually been broadcasting daily on Alexa devices. So you can actually find me on Alexa every day. Wonderful. That's great. Thank you very much, Trish. This has been hugely enlightening and uh, a thoroughly interesting conversation. So all's left for me to say is thank you very much for being a guest on the Learning and Development Podcast. Yay, cake. Thanks, David. Thanks so much for having me. Much of our own development as L&D professionals will be shaped by how we imagine the future of our practice and our functions. And that future will inevitably involve more and more data. We don't all need to be data scientists, but we do need to become more confident in discussing it, seeking it and tracking it. If you'd like to get in touch with me, perhaps to suggest topics you'd like to hear discussed, you can tweet me at David in Learning, connect on LinkedIn or Facebook, for which you'll find the links in the show notes. Goodbye for now.